I want to go ahead and invite you guys to turn over to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, we are going to continue this morning in a series we've just started on the Ten Commandments. We started with stories from Exodus early in the year, but in the last couple of weeks we've taken a turn into a really slow walk through one of the most famous parts of the whole Bible. The Ten Commandments is familiar to people who have no history with Christianity or with Judaism, but can't avoid knowing something about the Ten Commandments because of just how popular and prominent they've been throughout uh, Western culture, especially uh, uh, where we're living now. Unfortunately, one of the things we've been saying is that this familiarity with, the, with this part of the Bible can sometimes be a barrier, actually, to us understanding it and getting what we need to from it. We can bring assumptions to it that'll keep us from seeing what's actually there. We don't want to do that this morning. We want to work against it, and that's what we're going to try to do. This morning, we come to the second of the Ten Commandments. It's a command against making any sort of images, paintings or carvings or statues or whatever, in the likeness of or to represent some divine power. It's a a command against making idols. Now that practice that's, that's, that, that, that this command works against, I mean, it was just everywhere at the time when this command was first given. It was basic spiritual practice. Everybody would have just assumed that this was the right thing to do and okay to do. It was radical to be told not to. It was ubiquitous and everywhere at that time. Making a, making a, a, a statue and worshiping it as a god is almost unthinkable now to most of us living where we do and when. In the modern West, this kind of thing just seems ridiculous. And I think one of the main challenges we're going to face this morning is fighting back against the tendency to think that these people who needed this command when it was first given were gullible in a way that we aren't. That they were tempted towards practices that we couldn't be tempted to. Or, let me put it in a different way, one of the challenges we'll have to face this morning is, is the challenge to assume that we couldn't be guilty of what came so naturally to them. That this command calls out nothing in us that we need to worry about. Because, friends, what we'll see, I pray, by the end of our time together in this, in this command, considering this command, what, what I pray we'll see about it is just how timeless the sin behind it actually is. How what making an image represented then is a, is a posture of heart that's very much in us now. Well, I get, here's another way to put my goal for this sermon. My goal is that, that taking this command that most of us probably would naturally think we're safe on, like this is one we got. It's easy for me not to make any image and then worship it. To take one we think we're safe on and to show that we're not actually safe, but by God's grace we can be. My goal for the sermon is to see that when it comes to making images for yourself, you're not actually as safe as you may think you are, but that by God's grace, you can be. I want to ask three questions of our passage this morning. What does it mean to make for yourself an image? I think we need help to see beyond just the sheer physical act of carving something or painting something into the heart posture behind that before we'll know where we stand under this command. What does it mean? to make for yourself an image? How is it harmful to do so? And then why does it make God jealous? As I read this passage, you'll see why we're asking that third question. I want to begin by reading verses four to six of Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to ask you to please stand with me in honor of God's word while I read. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. 
You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is God's word. You can be seated. What does it mean to make for yourself an image? That's, what's, that, that's what this command tells us not to do. What does it mean? I think we have to know, first of all, that, 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 that what it means to make for yourself an image has a whole lot more to do than simple craftsmanship. In ancient pagan religion, an image was how you got access to the gods. That's what it represented. It wasn't just about craftsmanship and what was okay and not okay to make with your hands. It was about the reasons, the motives that would drive you to make an image in the first place. And in ancient pagan religion, where this practice was, was common to, to, al- to almost everyone in Israel's neighbors, the point of it was to give you access to the gods. Making an image was how you got the presence and the power of those gods into your life where and when you need them. I don't think it takes a whole lot of imagination to understand why this was attractive And I think trying to do that imaginative work, trying to understand something about why it would be attractive to these people who were first on the receiving end of this command will help us to see that what drove them to make their images uh, sounds a lot more familiar than we might have expected at first glance. I think imagining what made these images attractive helps us bridge the gap between what they wanted and how we might relate to God today. There's a guy that I've, I've found a lot of help from in reading about Exodus so far. I wrote a commentary a few years back. His name is Douglas Stewart. I wrote a commentary on Exodus that I've been using. And in this section on the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments, the ones that have to do with idolatry, he has a super helpful list of things that made idolatry of this kind attractive in the ancient world. A couple of those things I want to mention to you because I think they help us understand especially why making images was such a, a common practice at this time. And, and I think once you hear his reasoning based on his knowledge of that ancient historical context, I think you'll start to see yourself a little bit more clearly. Here's the first reason that, that, that someone would make an image during this time. Making an image and then worshiping it, this was a way to guarantee your access to these gods. It was about the guarantee. It was about taking something that seemed uh, mysterious, elusive, invisible, and making it visible, controllable, touchable on your terms. That's the first thing in Stuart's list, and I think it's the biggest issue. This sort of image making was all about control. It was about harnessing forces you know you needed to be for you whether those were rain or fertility or success in war or harvest coming in or whatever it was that you wanted, you needed to harness these forces that you knew were beyond you and then put them under your control, aiming them at your agenda for your life. So the images were a way to do that. He uses an image that I think is really helpful for this. He says it's almost like the the images were seen to, to house, once you created one, it was seen to house the power of the God you wanted to get on your side. 
And if you spoke to that God, related to that God through the image, it was kind of like us now. If we want to get a message through to somebody, um, we, uh, we, we'll turn the camera around backwards on our phone, record a video, and send it to them, text it to them. We have confidence that the cameras are equipped not just to record audio, but to record video as well. That if we use this device, our message will get through. We want to know and, and we have reason to believe that, that it'll work. He, he said that just like that, that, that's what these images were in the ancient world. They were like, like video cameras where you knew if I, if I put the message in here, it'll get to where it needs to go. So the image wasn't the God, but it represented the God. It was where the God's power and presence became accessible to you in your life, to you on your terms. Think about these images as a way to domesticate that power and aim it at your own needs. I think that's why this, I think this desire for control, the guarantee that an image promised you for getting the power of the gods on your terms in your life, that's why this command is against any image at all, including an image for Israel's God. This is a comprehensive command. You will not make for yourself a carved image, period, or any likeness of anything anywhere. This applies even to their own God, to the God of their fathers, to the God that redeemed them from Egypt. They weren't supposed to make images of him either. Because this isn't just about who you worship, it's about how you worship them. One of the most pivotal stories in the book of Exodus, it's actually a story that comes after uh, the section where our series will stop. I'm just going to point you ahead to this, encourage you to read it today. It comes in Exodus chapter 32. Uh, It's a story of Israel's decision to make for themselves an image that they thought would give them access to the power of the God who brought them out of Egypt. The story happens when Moses is up on the mountain where he was to meet with God to receive laws that would then be applied to Israel's life. So Moses is up there. He's having this conversation. God is writing for him on stones the main laws that are going to govern the life of his people. And while Moses is up there, the people are down below, down at the foot of the mountain, waiting. And they don't like to wait. They don't like waiting. After a while, they're tired of it. They aren't willing to wait any longer. So without Moses there, we're told, they turn to his brother Aaron. We're told that Moses, quote, delayed to come down for the mountain. So they ask Aaron to make them gods to go before them. This is Exodus 32. Just as the pillar and the cloud had gone before them before, they ask for Aaron to make them a God to go before them. So he takes all of their gold, he melts it down, and he fashions it into the form of a calf. Now before you assume that this is Israel choosing a different God than the one that had brought them out of Egypt, I think it really helps us to know what's behind this command that we're talking about today to know they think they're bringing the God who brought them out of Egypt back into their life for their agenda on their terms. When Aaron is finished, he says, Israel, these are your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You see what he's done? They're not shopping around for a new deity. They're wanting their God on their terms. Verse 5, Aaron says, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. The Lord that brought them out of Egypt. The Lord who was their God and the God of their fathers. He's trying to bring the presence and the power of God, the God of Israel, into their lives in a way that they can guarantee. They want access to them then and there for their purposes. You see how this works? The heart posture behind the drive to make an image is a posture of 
control. To guarantee access to the power you need and aim it at the agenda you've defined for yourself. That's the first thing that Stuart mentions. What makes this attractive? Why it's prohibited? And here's another reason, though. And this one goes right in line, right in line with this, this drive for control. Making an image is not just a way to guarantee results. Making an image is a way to limit the control of that God over you. Making an image was a way to control that God on your terms, but also a way to limit that God's control over you. Stuart says that compared to the, to the covenant that God is making with Israel here, with all of its requirements, with all of its whole comprehensive life vision for what your life should be like, compared to that covenant, this pagan style of religiosity was super easy. That's my phrase, not Stuart's. It's super easy because it's really simple and transactional. It's on your terms. You decide how much you need from that God and then you give them what it costs to get what you need. But other than that, the God doesn't own you. The God doesn't direct you or guide you. Sure, you have to keep them happy. Sometimes that's going to mean different sacrifices that maybe you wish you didn't have to offer. Yeah, they could make life difficult for you in this, old, in this system of, of religiosity. But mostly, those gods are just there when you need them and leave you alone when they don't. You're kind of a free agent. You get as much of them as you want, as much as you can pay for. Other than that, you do what you will. Think of them as kind of a, an insurance policy. You know, you pay your dues, you pay that monthly bill when it comes, but you know, your insurance is not, is not pulling any strings on your life. It's just there if you happen to need it, so long as you keep current on the payments. And that's sort of the way this sort of image-making religiosity was, was working. You can see, I hope, that, that the problem with making an image isn't just the sheer act of painting or carving something. If that were all that was involved, it'd be easy for us to avoid doing that. You've probably never done that at all. But it's, it's, it's much more than that. The problem is the heart posture behind this practice, a posture towards God that I think if we're honest with ourselves, we know all too well. When I first was starting in grad school, back in 2005, there was a book about American religion that came out that same year and had a huge, it made a huge splash in my field in American religion. It's a book called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers by a well-known sociologist named Christian Smith. Fantastic book. It's aged really well. You know, it's almost 15 years old now, but still still very relevant. Here's a category that they came up with in this book. I want, I want to see, I think many of you are in the age bracket that he was studying, um, uh, that, that would have been teenagers during the years that, that he was doing his research. Here's the, here's the category he and his colleagues came up with to describe the kind of religiosity he was noticing among teenagers at the time. He came up with a, this is going to be a clunky phrase, but I'm going to break it down for you so you understand where, it's coming, where he's coming from. The phrase that he came up with to describe it was moralistic, therapeutic deism. That the basic default religious practice and thinking of the teenagers he was studying was, he, he described it as moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now let me break that down and tell you what it means and you tell me if it sounds familiar. So the deism part, that's the main part. Deism is a view of God that says he's there. Maybe he's the creator. He's behind everything that is. He has a role, but he is detached. 
He's not involved in the details of life. He's not pulling strings. He's not providing things. He's just there when you need him, but he's otherwise doing his thing while you do yours. That's the deism part. It's been around a long time. It's especially popular now. Beyond the deism part, it's moralistic and therapeutic. The moralistic means if you want to get this God on your side when you need him, those rare times where you want to actually call in the support that he can give you into your life, then what he expects from you is basic goodness. You've got to be moral. Now, different people are going to define what that means different ways, but that idea was really consistent across the the people that Smith was studying. You want to get this God who's mostly detached, engaged in your life, you offer him your goodness in order to, 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 to get him on your side. The therapeutic part is what that God will do for you if you give him what you owe to him. If you do your job of trying to be a good person, he'll do his job, which is to make you happy. So deism, God is remote, he's detached, he's not involved in all the details of my life, but sometimes I need his help. So moralistic, I'll offer him my goodness, and therapeutic, he'll offer me the happiness that I want from him. Now, I don't know if that sounds familiar to you. Um, I'd love to talk to you about it afterwards if it does, just out of curiosity, just seeing what, what maybe you did live through and whether or not that has changed in the meantime. I'll be honest, like, I, I was just outside that age bracket that he was studying when, it, when the study came out in my early 20s. And I was studying this book as a student of American religion. So, you know, it's easy for us to sort of step back in our own detachment and just like say, oh yeah, that's true, people do that. But, but I think by God's grace, convicting me, bringing me to see myself a little more clearly than I did at the time, I can see a whole lot more of that posture in my own heart than I ever want to see there. So I, I don't know if, if when I described moralistic therapeutic deism, you were seeing yourself, but let me describe something else. Let me describe a way of relating to God, even the Christian God, that might sound more familiar. Sometimes I notice that my prayers are only ever sporadic and only ever desperate requests for something. There is, a, uh, there is absolutely a place for desperate request kind of prayers. The Psalms are full of them. But the Psalms are also full of other kinds of prayers. Prayers that just echo back to God true things about him from his word. That celebrate his character and all of his beauty. Prayers that sound a whole lot more like a smitten husband praising a wife. That, that, that just lift it up for the joy of lifting it up. Prayers that offer thanks for his goodness. For the fact that he's been there when you needed him. There's a wide range of prayers in the Psalms, not just the desperate, help me, I don't know what else to do sort of prayers that I tend to find myself praying. There's balance. The Psalms, in other words, they point us to a well-rounded relationship that often isn't something I'm experiencing or living with. Here's a good way to tell. How often is God a factor in basic decision-making? I'll often find myself praying to God for help with this thing that I want that I know I can't do on my own but that's you know one step downstream from another opportunity to pray to him when I'm trying to decide what would be best to begin with before I know to call in support on this particular agenda item I've got for myself I sometimes as long as things are going well and I'm establishing my agenda items for my life he's nowhere for me in other words treating him just like logistical support It'd be like making plans for my family, not consulting my wife, just sort of assigning to her the tasks that I've decided on. Another, another way to put it is that 
though I might want him to help me implement my vision for my life, what I really want underneath it all is freedom. I wonder if you see that posture in your own heart. I want to leave it to you and to your friends to talk about it. Ask one another, where am I tempted to domesticate God? To limit his sphere in my life or deploy him on my terms? Where am I tempted to domesticate him? Where you can find that, you've found where you're making images, at least in your heart. I want to talk to you now, though, about why it's harmful to do it. So one of the things we've said about the Ten Commandments is that they aren't meant to just keep us back from the good life. They aren't meant as barriers to what's best for us. They're meant as the path towards what's best for us. They're meant as the rails on which our train is designed to run if we want it to move smoothly and quickly. They're good. So one of the things we want to do each week as we come to each command is try to understand how they're good for us. What makes this command something that would be good for us to embrace? And I'm flipping that here with this question. How would it be harmful for us to do what this command prohibits? I want to mention a book. Last week I mentioned a couple of books that are super helpful for the study we're in now. A couple on the Ten Commandments. They're on the resource table. I want to mention another one now. That, was, that, that, that represents a, a perspective that's been really helpful to me as I've tried to understand what the Bible teaches about idolatry and especially as I've tried to understand where I'm guilty of it and where I need to repent of it and ask for forgiveness of it and, and to fight for more holiness. It's a book by a pastor from New York City named Timothy Keller. Some of you will be familiar with some of his books, but this one's called The Counterfeit Gods. Maybe you haven't seen this one. It's been out a while. The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and the Only Hope That Matters. It's a a book about idolatry and about the modern problem that idolatry is. It it helps to shine a spotlight on ways that we can domesticate God and try to bring him onto our terms. And much of what I'm going to say here in the next few minutes, I've I've learned from this book and a sermon on on this same subject. Uh, I've got this copy for free that I'd love to give to somebody after the service. So come up here and see me if you want to, and I'd love to give it to you. So I want to just focus in on one particular way in which it's harmful to this heart posture towards God that's always behind making an image where what I'm trying to do is to get him on my terms, bring him down and bring him into line with my vision for my life, that drive towards control and, and to limit his influence over me. That, that posture that we've just been talking about for the last few minutes, I want to talk about why it's harmful and just give you one particular reason. There are many we could give. I'm just going to give you one. One reason it's harmful and therefore prohibited is that a God on our terms would limit us to our perspective on what's best for us. A God who only uses his power where we ask him to is a God who who is going to be limited in the use of his power by what seems best to us, by our vision of the whole. That is not good for us. Now let's just let's just assume that uh, let's just assume for the for the, for the sake of this example Let's just, let's just start with Israel's experience with that golden calf. Let's say the image we're making is just trying to get the God of the Bible to help us accomplish our goals for our lives. What we're trying to do is to bring the God of the Bible into line with our vision for what would make us happy. Even if that were possible, it means we've still got to stay at the controls. We've got to know how to use them. The only, he, in his power, will only be as effective as our ability to operate him properly. In this scenario, God is more like a radio-controlled drone, and we're at the controls. 
I mean, you can get one that's cutting edge, top of the line, has all the bells and whistles and all the features, but that thing is only going to fly and take footage or whatever you're doing with it as well as you know how to make it fly. Ultimately, you're the one who's in charge. What makes you think you could operate him properly, even if it were possible? Let me give you an example that, that, that comes from Keller that I think is just really helpful and helped me to, to connect with this idea. Um, let me talk to some of the kids in here. So you kids, let's say elementary kids. Let's say those of you who are, say, five to eight years old. Now, now what you know, you've been taught this already, and the Bible says this is true. There is only one true God, just one. So what I'm about to ask you to imagine isn't possible, but I'm going to ask you to imagine it. And let's say it were possible for you to have a God who would do what you wanted it to do. And that God would do anything that you wanted it to do. I wonder what you would ask that God to do. If that God would do whatever you wanted and you were going to ask that God to make you happy, I wonder what it would include. I'm guessing, if you're anything like the kids that I know, that you would ask that God for unlimited candy, for unlimited screen time, for the end to all school assignments ever, to no bedtime. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what would be on your list. But if you could, if you could just implement through the power of a God that doesn't exist, if you could just make real exactly what you want from life, I wonder what it would be. I'm guessing it would be a bunch of stuff that if you could have it, would actually kill you. You wouldn't survive a week, maybe not even a day. And the 25-year-olds among you are out there nodding along. You're thinking back, oh, if I had had the power of a God at my disposal when I was five to implement my perfect vision for life, it would have been terrible. I'm so glad I didn't have that power back when I was five. Of course, now at 25, at 25, I would know a lot more how to operate that radio-controlled drone. If I could just get that power into my life right now to make real, poof, my vision of my own happiness, then everything would be great. And those who are 50 and older in here among us are looking back on their 25-year-old lives now, probably saying, that their 25-year-old vision of their happiness would have been just as destructive for their lives as the five-year-old's vision for happiness would, would be to you. At what point do we get enough life wisdom to have a comprehensive view of everything involved, of everything that bears on us, to implement our vision of happiness perfectly and always be good with it? Never. You never get to that point. Because you weren't made to bear that kind of responsibility. It isn't good for you. How many times have you gotten what you want only to realize you're still not happy? Maybe even to realize that you're still miserable. See, friends, a God who provides happiness only on our terms, like some sort of radio-controlled airplane, is only as effective as the one who's at the controls. And that isn't very effective. User error would be a debilitating problem in this scenario and not just a possible problem, a guaranteed problem. So friends, it is good for us to know that the one true God is not like this. His ways are not ours. Listen to how Isaiah talks of him in Isaiah 40. In Isaiah 40, verse 13, where Isaiah lists these questions about God. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? He doesn't need advice. Whom did he consult and who made him understand? 
Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? No one. The nations, some of the biggest and most powerful things we can even imagine, the nations to him are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. He takes up the coastlands like fine dust. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness? Does that sound familiar? Will you compare with him? It is good for us that the God of Israel is not a God like this. And the God of Israel, just in the sheer fact of giving these commandments to his people and by his grace to us today, is showing us that he wants his ways for us because he knows better. That's why I think at the end of the passage we looked at this morning that I read earlier, there's an emphasis again on loving him and keeping his commandments. What he wants for us comes down to our love for him and our keeping of his commandments. And the reason is that he knows our happiness only comes through holiness. It's only when we embrace his vision of what a good life is that we can know the kind of happiness we're all naturally craving. It would be harmful for us, in other words, to make for ourselves an image and worship it. I want to finish this morning, though, with a third question. Not just why it's bad for us, but why it's offensive to God for us to do this. The main emphasis of this passage is the reaction of God, not to the the downsides for us, as real as those are, as important as those are. The main emphasis of this text is on what it does in God when we make and worship images, gods on our design, deployed on our agenda. And the reaction that this text describes in God is summed up in the word jealousy. Why does it make God jealous when we make images for ourselves or relate to him in this way? That's the question I want to end with this morning. Look again at at verse 5. It says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. And then this shocking stirring description of what will happen to those who reject him as God in their lives. I will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. There is punishment, judgment passed on those who exchange the one true God for a God of their own making. It's serious. If you're tripping on this language, uh, I, I think that, uh, that, that it's important to know, helpful to know, Something that Douglas Stewart, the same commentator I mentioned earlier, says about this verse that we can, on a quick reading of it, it sounds like children are punished for what their parents did. There are other texts that say explicitly that's not the case. That's not how God works. But what, it's, what it is saying is that this rule holds. That it's just as true for your children as it's true for the fathers. And it'll stay true for the third generation. It'll stay true for the fourth generation. And in every generation that'll ever be to make an image like this will provoke the jealousy of the God who deserves our worship and will lead him to pass judgment on those who who abandon him. This jealous word, another way of of defining it, according to one writer, is passionate loyalty. I think that gets closer to what's going on here. This, this, This passage is very closely connected to what we talked about last week. One of the reasons God says, don't have any other gods besides me, is that God 
demands to be first an exclusive relationship with his people. He's not looking for transactions. He's not looking for somebody to buy anything from him, to pay him off with goodness so that he can make them happy in exchange. He wants a, a marriage-like relationship, a covenant relationship with his people. And that, that same idea is behind this verse too. Why does God get jealous when we make for ourselves images? I want to give you two reasons. The first reason that he gets jealous is that God deserves more from you. And the second reason that he gets jealous is that God wants more for you. God deserves more from you. And God wants more for you. So we've said that to make an image is always to put something else above this God. And God deserves more. Here's what I mean. Even if Israel... With the golden calf example, for, to take the golden calf for example. Even if Israel is not making images of their neighbor's gods, they're going to do plenty of that too eventually. But let's just say they're not worshiping a foreign god like Baal. They're, they're actually trying to get an image of the god who brought them out of Egypt and put that at the center of their life. Even when they're doing that, because what they're doing in that is trying to access his power and his presence on their terms, deployed on their agenda, they are by definition putting something else ahead of him. They're trying to use him as a means to their ends. Every time you come up with this image as a conduit to his presence and power, it's in order to use him for something else, to turn him into a means to an end. You're not wanting a relationship with him in that, in that sense. You're wanting logistical support. And another, another way to say that is that you've just broken the first commandment. You've put something else before him. You've put something else on his level something you need him for and God is jealous when we do this because his desire is so much more than to be logistical support for the lives we want to live he wants a personal relationship of love his jealousy is not petty and insecure jealousy his jealousy is the kind of jealousy that makes sense when you're in a marriage with someone that you love where that love is still alive and you're fighting for it and when someone in that marriage has put something else first here's here's another example from from Keller that I mentioned earlier, another really helpful example of this point. He talked about early in his, in his uh, life as a pastor, doing a lot of marriage counseling in a small town where um, there, there weren't other counseling options of any sort, and a lot of people came to him, and he was, he was doing a lot of marriage counseling. One of the things that he noticed was, uh, was that marriage problems tend to come when anything else other than the spouse becomes more important in the marriage, and that usually it's good things that become ultimate things. And here's a couple of stereotypical examples that he used. Often he would hear someone say, my husband is married to his work. It's his work that he's always thinking about. It's his work that gets him excited and turns him on. It's his work that he spends his time on day after day. He's going through the motions at home. Sure, he shows up. He's there for the right times, but his heart isn't there. Or he would hear a wife complain, or a husband complain of his wife. I see, she is an incredible parent. She is tender and patient and attentive and joyful and grateful, but I'm an accessory to her life. I'm the moral and logistical support for what's happening at home, but her heart is really with the kids. Now, what Keller says is that there's nothing wrong with work or kids. Not at all. Those are wonderful things, gifts of God even. 
But good things can't be first things or you're going to end up with a serious marriage problem. And the same applies to God. He has to come first. He doesn't want you going through the motions, obeying him. He doesn't want you to be merely logistical support for the life that you're living. He wants your heart. He's just asking for what any spouse would ask for, and he deserves it. The question for you, friends, is does he have it? Does he have your heart? What the gospel tells us is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They have given the glory that he deserves as the one all-sufficient provider to other things, as if those things would make for a better and happier life. Every one of us in this room this morning has been guilty of that sin. We have broken this commandment. And we deserve, the Bible tells us, what this passage warns us will happen. We deserve to have God make the record straight in our experience. We deserve to be let down once and for all by the things we've trusted with our lives. We've deserved to do without the only source of goodness and beauty and truth, this God who has made us, whom we have rejected. He wants our hearts, and we've given them away cheaply to other things. And that reality, which runs all through the Bible, sets up the surprising good news that is also built into not just this command, but what the New Testament tells us has come to pass in Jesus. I want to end with some encouragement for you. God is jealous that we not make images for ourselves because he deserves more from us than that. But he's also jealous that we not make images for ourselves because he wants more for us. God, in, 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 saying, in saying no to any image that would domesticate power and put it on our terms, bring presence and power of the gods into our lives on our terms, he say, in saying no to that, he's not saying he doesn't want us to enjoy access to his presence and his power. He does want us to have that, not just as an accessory in our lives when we feel like we need it, but at the heart of our lives, at the substance, at the foundation of our lives, he wants us to live with and to know his presence and his power. He says no to images here because he wants us to have more of his presence and his power than we could possibly have on our terms. He says no to images here because he has already in his own mind the image that he wants for us, an image of his design, fulfilling his purpose for our good on his terms, and he doesn't want us to settle for less. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul begins the letter with what is almost a hymn to Jesus, celebrating who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. And he opens that hymn section with a string of phrases about Jesus that describe his beauty and his power and how, how he's unprecedented in what he offers to us. And you know what the first, the first phrase that he applies to Jesus is? Paul says, he, Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. The one and only acceptable image. He is the reason no other image will do. Paul continues, by him, by this image, this image of God's design, of God's deployment, 
By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. Does that language sound familiar? There's nothing before him. All things were created through him, for him, and in him. All things hold together, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven, in heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. Friends, friends, Paul knew his Hebrew Bible. He was raised on these commandments. He'd known them all of his life. He knew what he was saying now when he starts singing about Jesus. He knew what he wanted to echo into the minds of those who read what he was writing. At last, an acceptable image of the invisible God, not one on our design. That's true. We're not suited to that task. We don't create him. All things are made through him. We don't control him. All things were made for him. He is the point, not some means to an end. All that stays true. But in him, in this image, God gives us what he always intended his people to enjoy. His presence, his power at the center of our lives. Not on the shelf to be pulled off and dusted off and deployed here and there where we think it makes sense. But at the foundation, as the the very habitat in which our lives unfold. He intended him to be our life. And for us to live only in him. And friends, in this image, more clearly than anywhere else and ever before, we see what it means to have the Lord for your God, as this text says that he is. I am the Lord, your God. In Christ, we see what it means to have him as ours, at our disposal. To have his limitless resources deployed for our good. Defined not by our image of what's best, but by his steadfast love. Because this image came to die. This image came to make peace with sinners by the blood of his cross. And at this image, viewing it, we have an opportunity to give up our bargaining to give up our definitions of what's best for us, to give up control, and to ask for forgiveness instead. And if we will, then he will never turn us away. Let's pray that he'll help us to embrace him. Father, we know what's in our hearts and that there is far too much of this worldly desire for control in us. We know that we crave what your commands tell us to reject. And we know that we don't have the power to renovate our own hearts. And so we ask you, by your spirit, to fix our eyes on the image you have given us. To see the beauty and power of all that Jesus is. And to rest in him. To willingly give up our right to control our futures. And to rest in in the promise that if you've given him for us, you'll give us everything else that we need. Thank you for Jesus. We pray to you in his name. Amen.